All right, guys, I'm here with Label, and we're doing a podcast from an Israeli perspective. And before we get into this, before you start commenting, I get the controversy here, and I understand the dilemma that people are going through, being confused and not understanding the totality of it. It's a very emotional thing, this conflict between Israel and Gaza. For the world, for Americans, certainly, for Jews, for Palestinians, no matter who you are, you're affected by this. I mean, I, I personally am affected when I wake up and see pictures of children on either side of the conflict that are maimed and burned and injured. I understand. Part of that and part of the reason I'm doing a podcast with Label is I want to get some perspective. With that said, this is one side of the perspective. And I'm offering, if you're interested and communicating to us um, from a Palestinian perspective, from somebody who's potentially been there, who's lived in Gaza, let me know. Um, reach out to us. Uh, I'll put the contact information down below in the links and you guys could do that because I would be willing to have that conversation. As long as it's long form, we can get down in the weeds and get some perspective, which is what we're gonna do today with Label. Label, thanks for coming out, man. Appreciate you having me. You, you flying from LA? Uh, so I actually live in Atlanta now. Um, awesome. So I flew in last night. Appreciate the opportunity. I think it's important that we're having this discussion. Now you reached out to me and yeah, it, it's tough because like I had to vet you and do some things and you know, on, on social media, I always think that's a, a part of the process. But after the vetting and after our conversation, uh, I want to get your perspective because you have a unique one. Tell a little bit about kind of your background and this idea of non-Israeli born citizens um, who are Jewish coming to Israel to serve and how that worked out for you. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. My my parents uh, run a Jewish community center in Cincinnati, so I grew up very religious, ultra-Orthodox, um, you know, going to schools where they didn't even teach any English and just kind of really immersing ourselves in, in biblical study and things like that. Um, kind of at the age of 16, I realized that I wanted a little bit of a different path for myself and kind of left the the system that my family raised me in and went to public school and played football and did whole, that whole deal. And after I graduated, kind of just thinking about what I what I wanted to do next in life and, and do something meaningful. And I think for me that the two biggest inspirations that ultimately led me to serve were my grandfather is one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. Uh, he was just 10 years oh, old wow. when he was when he was sent there and, and hearing all of his stories growing up. I always felt like there was going to come a point in time at some point in my life where I'd have to do something in order to give back to him and give back to the Jewish people in general and um, honor his sacrifices and all that. So I was never quite sure what that would be. But that along with the fact that I grew up kind of during the period of the Second Intifada when Jews in Israel were being killed and blown up in, in cafes and, and buses and um, just walking down the street, things of that nature. So I felt like for me at that point in time, I felt like it was my duty to, to serve. And I felt that the best way to do that was to go to Israel and serve as what's called a lone soldier, which as you mentioned, is somebody that um, is not born in Israel, doesn't even have immediate family in Israel, but Israel has this unique law called the right of return where any Jews are allowed to, to move to Israel and become citizens and serve in the military there. Um, so that's what I did. I think there was some thought in my mind of like, you know, U.S. military, I'm a proud American as well. And um, for me, I just felt like there I could make the biggest, the biggest impact. You know, we're not going to fight other people's wars in other countries and things like that. It's literally protecting our homeland and protecting our own people. And I'm ultimately, that's the decision I made. So you, you served in the Israeli Defense Force. Yes. And just just for people's education, I know a little bit, little bit about this. But if you're born and raised as a citizen in Israel, you have to serve in some capacity, right? Correct. Yeah, mandatory service there. Um, it used to be three years for, for boys and, and two years for girls. I think they've lowered it a little bit even for boys. Um, I think it's maybe two and a half years now or two years, eight months. Uh, but ob obligatory service. So everybody serves in some capacity, some in, in combat roles, some not. But service is required. How difficult of a process was it for you when you showed up and you're like, I mean, how does it work? Like you show up and you're, you have an email contact and you reach out and you say, hey, I want to do this. And they facilitate it. How does Yeah. It so the kind of the first communications happened while I was still here in the States. There's an organization that, that deals with people who are moving over there. So I said, hey, I want to move. I want to serve. They said, basically, let us know when you're here. 
Um, so once I landed, I sent them another email, got on the phone with them, and they said, show up to this and this office at this and this time in Tel Aviv. So that's what I did, and I kind of basic interview. They put me in the system, kind of waited around for a couple months, then I got a draft and enlistment date two months later. Uh, and that was the gist of it. It wasn't, you know, wasn't too complicated. Um, some basic medical screening, background checks. Um, Did you go to basic training? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so once you're drafted, you're you're in the process, just the same as everybody else. So I got my enlistment date. I showed up, the only English speaker, surrounded by, you know, thousands of Israelis. No, no idea what the hell was going. Did you on. speak any Hebrew at the time? Very, very basic. Yeah. Um, super, super basic. So it was definitely challenging in the beginning, just even from a, a language perspective, um, kind of just looking around and seeing what everyone else was doing and figured that I should probably be doing that same stuff. So yeah, I think some people think that there's like separate units for English speakers or things like that. I've heard that sometimes, but no, like once, once you're drafted, you get your draft date, just like everybody else. So you're else. integrated as, what is it called? This something soldier? The lone soldier. The lone soldier. Yeah. So you're integrated as a lone soldier there's not, this isn't like the Legion. No. You're not in a separate unit. You're just integrated with other draft, or not draftees, but other volunteers or draftees. Draftees, just, everybody. So I was okay. the, the only American in my unit, the only English speaker in my unit. Wow. Um, yeah, once once you get that enlistment date, you're you're in there with everybody else. There's no there's no difference. There are some extra privileges that, that lone soldiers have. They get paid a little bit more. They get an extra couple of days off a month. They kind of take care of some personal stuff because they don't have a family they're going back to or things like that. Um, but besides that, it's you're in the military just like everybody else. What, what was your specific uh, job or specialty in the military and how did they down select that for you? Yeah, so I drafted into a unit that specializes in counterterrorism. So we operated um, only in urban environments um, as opposed to other infantry units that kind of do rotations around different borders and stuff. So we were focused, our fo primary focus was operating in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank. Our unit was stood up actually in response to the second intifada where they didn't have a unit that sole focus was operating in urban environments, which was new, new for Israel at that point in time. Um, and the way it works is I basically gave them my top three choices and, uh, like I'd like to serve here. I'd like to serve here. And based on your medical screening and your physical profile and the profile that they've built out for you, if there's room in those places, they'll try and, they'll try and fit you in. Um, some units have, extra screening that you got to go through um, what's called a gibush in Hebrew, like a, a screening process where not everybody makes it, things like that. Um, but I happened to, to get my first choice and it kind of worked out that way. So they, they down select the unit in the geographical region and kind of what that unit is responsible for. And then you're part of a trainee selected to go to that organization yes. versus your needs of the army, obviously, when you join the army, you go to basic training, and then once you're done, they pluck you and they go, you're going here. Yeah, no, very different. It's your, your path is kind of set up before you start day one. So um, the guys you start basic training with, for the most part, I mean, there'll be a few guys who fall out and different things, but you're gonna be with throughout your entire service. So um, start the basic training, it's a four month basic training and then a four month advanced training, and then you're, you're sent to active duty right after that. Wow. How was that overall experience for you? Um, it was a little overwhelming, especially in the beginning, I think specifically because of the language barrier at first, like it's, it's hard to make connections with people and really feel like you're, you're part of the group. Um, when you, when you can't communicate properly, um, you know, a lot of those nu nuances that build brotherhood, you know, the, the jokes and the ribbing on each other and all that stuff were very difficult for me in the beginning. I think I was also probably probably picked on a little bit because people didn't really understand, you know, they thought of America as kind of the American pie movies and they couldn't figure out why on earth somebody would give up that experience to come sleep in a hole in the ground with them. And they, you know, were kind of apprehensive of the idea at first of like, who are you? What are you doing here? Um, but as time went on and I picked up the language and they saw that I was there for, for the right reasons and was going through the same stuff that they were and, and going through the sock with them, I think, you know, that stuff kind of to fall away a little bit. And um, I mean, I think, I think now looking back, it's one of the highlights of my life and kind of something I'm most proud of for sure. I'm interested in the culture of the military, especially in the beginning, before you actually got deployed or in, and established with your unit. You know, like when I went through basic training in the 90s at Fort Benning, Georgia, uh, the School of the Infantry, there wasn't really a war going on, right? Um, 
you know, like as we progressed, I mean, we, we were still doing Cold War tactics and we were focused on Cold War. Like even the even the qualification targets that you shot were angry Ivans. They're like the green Russian soldier with a still pot helmet. Right. Were, were there cultural elements that kind of differentiated your position in the conflict that you were involved in, where Israel was surrounded by Arab states and people that didn't want Israel to exist? I mean, was there a, could you tell there was, I don't I hate to use the word indoctrination, but an indoctrination or information campaign to get you guys culturally aligned that way? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I would describe it, it was it was very real from day one. Like, we understood that the safety and security of our people depends on us today. And and again, we're not being sent to fight wars thousands of miles away. We're protecting our own backyards. Like, there, there are guys who, who are literally stationed a mile away from their homes. And it's like, if we don't hold this line, our homes a mile away are going to be destroyed and our people are going to be killed. Unfortunately, we've seen that recently. Interesting. Um, so it was, I think, you know, motivation and stuff like that was was there from day one. And it wasn't something that we needed to be preached about or like people, people get it. People have seen it. People have, I think something that's unique about Israel is every single person there has been affected one way or another. Everybody has a family member that was killed in war or was affected by a terrorist attack. It's, it's, I think that that cultural part, people don't quite understand. I mean, it's a small country. We're talking about 10 million people that's been in, in wars from the beginning of beginning of time and everyone serves. So it's, it's something that everybody feels in their blood. It's not it's something that I, you know, even here in America, like I feel like people don't appreciate our troops enough because there's many times so much separation between guys who are serving and, and people living good lives here in America. People don't, people don't feel it on a day-to-day -day basis where in Israel, every, everyone, everyone's been affected by it some way or another. So it's, everyone understands what, what they're there for and what, what the mission is. Yeah, the stakes are high. It's yeah. very real. Yeah, that's interesting that your perspective on that because I've never heard that, or I've never even really thought about it. Where in Israel, you're not deploying to foreign wars right. like America does across seas that you know officer offers us and affords us protections. You're defending the homeland from all the invasions and all the terrorist attacks that are coming into you. Yep. Um, interesting. Did you sense any prejudice against? You know, I, I like the statistics alarming for me. What people don't realize, like twenty percent of the Israeli population is Arab. Sure, and a lot of people don't realize that. And so, um, did you sense there was a prejudice or line between an Israeli and an Arab, or or a, a somebody from Gaza or somebody from out, outside of the country? Yeah. So I mean, I would say that look, no, no country is perfect, and every country's got its issues, and and there are always ways to improve, but. But speaking generally, I didn't feel that. I mean, I served alongside Arabs. I served alongside Christians. I served anyone you can think of. And everyone in that melting pot, their, their mission is aligned. There's not there's not the Arab group of soldiers and the Israeli group of soldiers. We're all in it together. Um, and this is why I also think it's so important for people to actually go to Israel because we have this narrative in the media and stuff. But like, walk down the streets of Jerusalem and there's not... A Jewish side of the street and an Arab side, like everyone's walking together, working together, living together, and praying uh, together. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you you'll have you'll have a Jewish guy praying right next to a to a to an Arab or a Muslim guy. I mean, that that was the reality. Um, and it, it's it's mind boggling to me how how it's been so skewed. And again, not to say that that's a perfect country. That that would be foolish of me to say. There are there are there are its issues and there are its bad apples and and there's always work to be done. But um, I, I didn't feel that there was any, you know, separation of people that way. Hey guys, hot salt from firecracker.farm. Now you guys have seen me use this. I've used this and I'm a big believer in one, getting your electrolytes through any means necessary. Most of you are deficient in salt in the first place. So yeah, there's a health and wellness benefit, but it also makes everything taste better. I use it on my eggs. I use it in my coffee. I use it when I'm camping, when I'm hunting. In the backcountry, it's great because I could just sprinkle it on my food on the go. And it's really neat, man. I mean, this is a high quality piece of equipment and it's pushing out flavor to the max. 
If you use Mike Force right now, you could save 15% at firecracker.farm. That's Mike Force, one word, compressed together. Mike Force, one word, compressed together. That's 15% off at firecracker.farm. In your military experience, you actually were involved in some significant deployments, and um, a couple of them had profound impacts on you personally. Uh, I sensed that even in the in the short conversation we had about it. Talk to me about those 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 impacts. Yeah, so I served um, in 2014. I was in an area called Gush Etzion, which was or still is uh, about seven or eight miles south of Jerusalem in in Judea and Samaria in the West Bank. And this is an area where there are many Jewish and Arab towns in very very close proximity to each other. They share same supermarkets, same gas stations, the same roads. Um, so on one hand, it's kind of this beacon of like coexistence when things are going good, but also when things are not going good, it causes a lot of a lot of security challenges. Um, so in the spring of 2014, at a bus stop, three Jewish teenagers, young teenagers, were hitchhiking home from school and were kidnapped by Hamas terrorists. And this kidnapping took place right across the street from our outpost, um, right in our AO. So we were heavily involved in the in the mission, the operation, not only to find them. Um, but to hunt down those responsible, those who had any connection to what had happened, um, really try and root out Hamas infrastructure in the West Bank, which, which again, I've seen it time and time again now where people are saying there is no Hamas in the West Bank, which is, which is not true at all. Um, I believe, honestly, if there was an election in the West Bank today, Hamas would win, but that's a different conversation. Um, so that... That was honestly one of the most difficult experiences of my military service because that's something that we had not trained for. Uh, we had trained to go to go fight the bad guys. We did not train for, um, you know, three innocent teenagers under our watch being kidnapped and now go find them and then go bring, go bring them home in, in whatever capacity that means. Um, so those following three weeks you know, all day, every day, going out and searching for them, trying to figure out, looking for clues, looking for, you know, where where, where were they taken, things like that. And then at night, uh, kicking in doors and, and trying to find them that way, but also hunt down those those who were responsible, uh, those who had any, any connection. Ultimately, a few weeks later, um, a small team of soldiers from my unit, a small team of paratroopers, and a small team of uh, civilian volunteers who were kind of experts in the layout of the land were searching outside a field uh, near Hebron in an Arab town called Khalhul. And one of the one of the volunteers, the trackers, realized that something about this field didn't look right. Kind of things were moved around in a way that they shouldn't have been. I mean, kind of there in a in a small little cave under a bunch of large stones. Uh, we found their bodies. They had been executed a couple of minutes later, a couple of minutes after they had been kidnapped. Um, it just tossed into this field. Uh, and that kind of kicked off the operation in the Gaza Strip, Operation Protective Edge, um, where I lost three friends of mine. Something that also people don't know is this idea of tunnels is not new. That's something that we dealt with in 2014. Um, the idea of Hamas using GoPros to, to film their atrocities is not new either. Um, actually, one of my buddies who was killed, um, Hamas terrorists came up through a tunnel um, right to his post where he was at with GoPros and uh, killed four soldiers there, all on camera, and went back into their tunnel, and, you know, as they do. So these are not new concepts. These are not new ideas. Um, I, can't, I think the world has kind of seen it on a grander stage this time, but this has been going on for years. And um, this was obviously on a different level, uh, you know, 1,200 1, civilians, well, 1,200 people killed, 400, 400 soldiers, 800 civilians, um, you know, executed, women raped, children beheaded. Um, but again, I think, I think people think that this, this conflict started, or Hamas, the first thing they ever did was on October 7th. That's just not, not the reality at all. That, that operation, Israel went kinetic in um, Gaza City. Did, was it Gaza? Yeah, so the it was kind of two two operations back to back. One kind of led into the other. So the the, the where the three boys were kidnapped was was in the West Bank in Judea and Samaria. Um, during the operation to find them as well as destroy Hamas capabilities in the West Bank, Hamas from Gaza started firing rockets 
thousands of them from Gaza into Israel. Um, at the same time, the tunnels were discovered pretty much for the first time at that point. Though at that point, the primary concern of the tunnels was not tunnels in Gaza. It was they actually had built tunnels from Gaza into Israel and had been planning to um, come up into Jewish-Israeli communities through these tunnels and, and commit mass murder that way. Um, so the primary objective of that operation in Gaza was to destroy these tunnels that were were being created into Israel. Um, and then from that point, Israel invested billions of dollars to, to build walls that went underneath the ground to prevent tunnels from being built and, and border walls and, and, and technology and all of that. Um, so a little, little bit of a different objective from this time, but, but again, a lot, of, a lot of similarities. Yeah, so they targeted infrastructure and went kinetic and it was a campaign. Yeah. And then it stopped. Right. Um, so it, this was 2014, right? Yes. So we obviously know, I mean, since the elections that took place, I believe, in 06, 07, yep. and Hamas took over, intelligence has been telling the IDF since that time that these type of things were going to continue to happen. Now, fast forward, you you have your IDF experience. You go back to the States. Yeah. Uh, you start a security company in L.A. focused on synagogues and protecting your own community. Yeah. And then October 7th happens. W where are you when you hear about October 7th? What was the, what was the shift? Knowing you served in some capacity because you felt like a, des a desire deep in you from your, likely your grandfather and that experience to serve. And then you go come home and everything's kind of back into the routine of things. And then October 7th happens, which, which is, you know, they're calling the equivalent of your, of, uh, America's nine 11. I imagine that impacted you and your community a lot. Yeah. So I'd, I'd actually moved to Atlanta about a year and a half ago. Um, LA man. Yeah. Not a pretty place right now, but, um, October 7th, uh, I just gone to sleep after celebrating the holiday and, and the Sabbath with our community. Um, was woken up by a flurry of phone calls and text messages from from buddies of mine from my service. Um, you know, they were kind of just, you know, Israel's under attack, reserves have been called up, but I was kind of like, all right, like this has happened before. There's been these minor conflicts every couple of years. I didn't think too much of it. And then they started sending some some videos and stuff, and I was like, holy crap, like this is this is different. different. Yeah. And that became clear as soon as as soon as I saw some of those first videos and images, um, and it brought up a lot of those same memories from 2014 of like, I think the interesting part as soldiers who served in 2014, the frustration of, you know, why did we do that if, if we weren't allowed to, to actually bring security to our country and to our people? Like these kind of three week mom and, you know, just mom and pop small operations that don't accomplished much in the long run because it doesn't take them very long to replenish and restock. And here we are again. Um, so for me, just like everybody else, it was no matter where around the world we were at that time, it was, we got to get back. Like everyone's, everyone's going back all hands on deck. Um, and I think what really did it for me personally was the images and the videos of dragging our women through the streets, uh, raping them, beheading children. You know, this is not an attack on a military outpost by itself and, and that's it. You know, this was the clear, um, not even attempt, they, they achieved murder, destruction against innocent women and children. And filming it and celebrating it and taking pleasure in it. Um, even just thinking about it now, three months later, like it, it does something to me. And, you know, arrangements were quickly made. Um, I got back on a flight to Israel, I think maybe two or three days later and, um, headed down South and, and again, felt that sense of duty and responsibility is it's time to protect protect our people and protect our homeland. What was the the general feeling that you got from IDF leadership about what took place in the, I, I guess the absence of 
not only response, but near neglect of understanding the intel picture and the potential threat that existed. Because I mean, this is a, I mean, in 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 detail when you look at the nineteen attackers on nine eleven, uh, all from Saudi Arabia, it was a very detailed, comprehensive plan of attack, and there was a lot of missed opportunities. And yeah. I mean, even case officers in the CIA who specifically were saying this is going to happen. And I was I was kind of taken back by all the IDS response where they took accountability. Every single one of them, all the way up to like the Joint Chiefs level was like, we screwed up. Yeah. And we should have we should have done it better and we won't make that mistake again. Did you did you get a sense that mistakes were made and that something was something was amiss? Yeah, I mean, there's no question mistakes were made. That doesn't happen if mistakes aren't made. Um, this is my own opinion and just talking with some people, you know, the guys on the ground, not anything in any from anyone in any official capacity. Um, I think Israel was was lulled to sleep. You know, you it had been mostly quiet the last couple of years. Um, you think that was intentional part of the plan? I do lay low. Yeah. Build complacency. Uh, complacency. I yeah. think, you know, when nothing happens day after day after day, you just kind of assume nothing is going to happen today and nothing is going to happen tomorrow until it does. So, I mean, it, you know, as time passes, it seems to be coming out more and more that there were some of these warning signs that were ignored for whatever reason. Um, I know it was also a holiday and a lot of soldiers kind of on that front line of defense were sent home for the weekend or, or were stationed to other places. Um, I think also Israel thought that you know, we spent billions of dollars on this security wall, the security fence, so much technology, all this stuff. Like, what can they actually do to us? They have these rockets, but we have the Iron Dome, and they're limited in what they can do. Um, that was wrong, clearly. But to me, the the more disturbing part, which is something I'm I'm still very unsure of, is less the intelligence failures, which will have to be answered for, obviously, but the response time, I still, I still can't comprehend and have no no answers for of, of all right, we messed up, it's happening now, but we're going six, 12, 18 hours before anybody shows up. And it's a small, con I mean, it's- The size of New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, it's like 230 miles from north to, north to south, maybe 60 miles east to west. Like, how does it take 12 hours and kind of even, they recently released a, a WhatsApp group from one of the border towns of the whole community. And just reading the messages from that day and all the questions are like, where's help? Where are the guns? Where's the military? Where's the police? And, um, and slowly the, the messages start slowing down because people are dying and eventually there's nobody left. And it's like those final messages are 16 hours later. Um, so I, I definitely do think there's going to be a day where people are going to have to answer for, for what happened because hundreds of innocent lives, um, hundreds of innocent people were killed because of, of failures on, on leadership levels of all kinds. You, you get on the ground and what are you involved in? How long was that involvement? And what, what is the day-to-day -day mood of, of the things taking place? Just from an outsider perspective, watching it and examining it, examining it even in the content from the IDF as presented, I, I got the perspective that um, everybody wanted to get vengeance. They wanted to go to war because they they felt a sense of duty to defend and also retaliate against those who who harmed their people. Yeah, I think what's most interesting to me is the the border communities that, that they attacked, that Hamas attacked, were some of the farthest left communities that exist in Israel. Like people who were all about, you know, make peace. You can make peace with your enemies if you just love them enough. And, yeah. and uh, they're not really that bad. Or, you know, they'd have people from Gaza in their homes working for them or things like that. And that's gone in Israel. Like those people have come out and said, like, we get it now. Like these are these are people that we cannot live side by side with, and they need to be destroyed. And enough is enough. We we can't continue doing this dance of every two years. There's some 
some rising tension in the conflict, then it quiets. We just we can't live this way because it's only a matter of time um, until the next October seventh. Um, so it's been uh, an extremely and almost completely united front where everybody understands that Hamas cannot exist anymore. Um, no, no country in the world would would put up with with what Israel has put up with, and would put up with October seventh, and would put up with having Hamas on their border. It's just not, it's not reality. It's not an option for anybody in Israel anymore. And, and everybody is united around that for sure. Yeah. The leader of the Palestinian authority is in a five-star hotel in Qatar. Um, other elements of leadership, um, are completely outside of Gaza. Um, they, they're not there. And what I found kind of blistering when kind of examining this from an outsider's perspective is how there's this free Palestine movement now. And many people have opinions, especially because um, Israel was deemed, it, with U.S. followed by a comma, um, as the oppressors, yeah. oppressing the Palestinian people. Before we had the conversation on the podcast, we had talked about some incidents that Hamas was using civilians, even civilian capacity in emergency services. Talk to me about some of that stuff, that perspective that people don't have. Yeah, I think, I think um, for some reason, people have this, this idea that, you know, they call Hamas freedom fighters and this and that, like they're, they're fighting on behalf of people, but it's so clear to anybody who's lived this or has seen it or experienced it that it not only is Hamas threatening and, and killing innocent Israelis, but, but they're doing the same to their own people. Um, it's, it's human shields on all types of levels. It's stealing aid. It's um, even from a leadership perspective, sending, sending them down a path where there is no future. I mean, Hamas and, and, the, the Palestinian movement has been fighting this movement of resistance for decades. Name me one thing that has come out from that that has positively affected Palestinian civilians. Not one thing that doesn't exist. So at some point, the, the Palestinian movement, you know, Hamas will be out of the picture, but the Palestinian movement, whether it's the people on the ground or all these NGOs or even the people who claim to care about Palestinians here in the United States and around the world are going to have to realize that the only way that Palestinian people have a brighter future is if the talk stops being about intifada and resistance and um, from the river to the sea and changing the narrative and the conversation to how do we benefit actual Palestinians on the ground. Um, You know, I, people laugh at me when I say this, but I'm an Israeli soldier who served in the West Bank, and I have helped more individu individual Palestinians in my lifetime than some of the largest Palestinian organizations in the world. The entire movement is predicated and based on destroying another people, um, and destroying another people doesn't benefit your people at all. So. If, if the world spent all that time, all that money, all those resources and energy helping build Palestinian businesses and, and pumping money into the economy and um, reworking the education system where Palestinians grow up believing that the, the way forward is not to go blow yourself up in a, in a cafe, but, but to, to be successful as a human being and, and give something positive to the world we'd have peace in the Middle East, or at least in, in the Israel-Palestinian conflict very quickly, but it's not. And, and to me, it's clear why it's not, is because no one benefits from that. No, none of the people speaking the loudest, who are pumping in the most money, who are making the most money benefit from that. The leaders of Hamas don't benefit from peace, they benefit from conflict. These NGOs, they become irrelevant once there's peace. Um, these movements in America that are raising millions and millions of dollars, they won't be raising any money when there's peace. Um, and I think people need to understand that. And, you know, to give you the example of, that we talked about earlier, 
I think people get caught up in looking at the final picture, which is easy to do, right? You see a dead Palestinian child, it's easy to say at that point, Israel's evil, IDF is evil, occupiers, oppressors, Nazis, that's easy. But solutions aren't always easy. If we want to actually provide a solution, we got to take a step back and look at the full picture. And how did that dead Palestinian baby even get to a point where he's standing next to a Hamas commander or standing next to a rocket launcher? Or, um, you know, the, the specific example I gave is, is during the Second Intifada, when there was free access between the West Bank and Israel, Palestinian suicide bombers were, were coming into Israel constantly, blowing themselves up in, in cafes, buses, all over the place. So eventually Israel decided enough of this, we can't have free access to anybody who wants. Um, so they built a wall between the West Bank and, and the rest of Israel, which stopped suicide bombings almost overnight. But what Palestinian leadership and Hamas and these terrorist organizations did is, um, through these checkpoints that would be between the wall, they started using ambulances that weren't stopped at checkpoints to transport weapons and to transport suicide bombers and things of that nature. So eventually Israel said, look, if you're going to use ambulances to, to transport suicide bombers, we're going to have to stop allowing ambulances to come through unchecked as well. So what happens the next time somebody in an ambulance who's trying to go to an Israeli hospital gets stopped at a checkpoint and the person dies or the child dies in that ambulance, the world's in an uproar about the dead Palestinian child in the ambulance. Well, anyone with any sense of anything in their brain would realize, well, we're only in this position because we're using freaking ambulances to transport suicide bombers. So if we actually wanted a solution, we'd, we'd put our time and energy and, and condemn and hold accountable the people that are using ambulances to transport suicide bombers. But for some reason, nobody does this. And it's just zoomed in on the dead Palestinian child, which is of course awful, but we're not gonna actually solve anything when we do that. And I think that's the most frustrating part for me. Yeah, it's such an interesting conundrum. I mean, certainly there is evidence, even the corporate media who's been pushing Hamas, Hamas talking points, essentially. I used the analogy, I said, can you imagine all the corporate media months after 9-11 and the tower, towers fell and they're still smoldering rubble that we were taking talking points from Al-Qaeda to use as information. You know, some of these statistics, including 20,000 now civilians, which I don't believe because one, even the hospital where the parking lot was hit yeah. by a stray rocket that was literally videotaped on Al Jazeera, when it impacted, even the video the following day didn't show any bodies. It showed burned vehicles and black soot, which is an indication of expelled fuel or propellant. Um, and Hamas came out almost immediately post the explosion and said 500 people were killed, 500 innocent people were killed. And they tabbed that and still accumulated into the total number. Now, are innocent people being killed? Yes, yeah. innocent people are being killed. But I'm interested in your perspective on what's now happening all over the, the country. Um, New York City, the mayors just responded with, uh, it's almost 500 protests since October 7th for free Palestine. Nearly all which have turned violent in some capacity that have turned into a riot. Um, according to the Mayor Adams, from outside agitators, which is not surprising. Um, LAX was just shut down yesterday. Um, and this is happening all over the country. I'm actually- I'm And it's to, not random. It's, it's not, not random. Coordinated. It's coordinated, and, yeah. absolutely. And I, I'm supposed to uh, fly soon to go get stem cell therapy in Mexico. And I'm actually concerned because um, potentially there might would be a protest that would shut down travel and, and, and people's um, rights to be able to travel back and forth. And I see this happening, but I don't see a lot of educated people giving specific reasons on why they're advocating in our university's cases for the genocide of Jewish people. Um, I mean, they're literally advocating for from the river to the sea, yeah. talking points. And they don't know which river and which sea. They, they don't just, at all. Uh, they can't, like you said, they can't right. point to it on a map. 
but th this convolution is 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 very difficult to navigate for most people and so most people um i would say don't have interest in either side but if you're campaigning for free palestine you certainly have a position because it's oppressor versus the oppressed in your opinion well one what is your take on innocent civilians in gaza being killed with the caveat i, I will caveat this I have not seen one Arab nation stand up to assist the Palestinian people, even in Jordan, where the majority of people are from Palestine or, or claim to be Palestinian, where they're talking a lot of the talk, but nobody's willing to walk the walk and actually support the people, including Egypt, who's bordered with Gaza. Yeah, which I think most people don't know. Yeah. Right. It's like they think. You know, Israel. They think Gaza's in a cage in right. the middle of Israel. Not, not reality. Um, to the innocents, I mean, I, it'd be foolish in me to sit here and say there are no innocents being killed. Of course there are, and it's awful. Every innocent life, no matter what side, is, is a tragedy and is terrible. Um, to speak to the numbers thing again, it, it's 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 mind-boggling to me how... Okay, let's, let's even say that 20,000 have been killed in Gaza. We're not reporting on how many of those are, are militants or terrorists. So we're, we're magically supposed to assume that no terrorists have been killed. Um, I think the latest number Israel's put out at about 8,000. It's about, the thir about a third, nearly uh, a, a third. A little more than a third. Yeah. Um, which if you look at, again, give me context of other wars that have been fought is is very in line, if not better, when it's it comes better, to... Most to to civilian deaths, which doesn't doesn't excuse them or make them irrelevant. It, it's it's part of the conversation and it's tragic, but war is ugly. And we need to remember who started this. Israel didn't wake up on October 7th and say, destroy the Palestinian people. This is a response to an act of war, an act of genocide. And there is not another single country in the world, not one, who would stand for what happened. I mean, I just put in context here in America. If you put percentage-wise, percentage it's as if, let's just say, Mexico came across the border and butchered 30,000 Americans in one day, not by dropping bombs, but killing each one individually, raping our women, beheading our children, and then taking thousands of hostages back into Mexico. What would America do? Oh, sorry, Mexico, there's civilians there. We can't do anything? Of course not. And there's no civilized country in the world that would do that. Hamas needs to be removed and... Israel does all that it can, um, and in many, many times more than any military in the world would do to prevent civilian casualties, including um, telegraphing what their next move is, which even Secretary Blinken got up on a podium and said, we're asking of Israel to do more than we would do ourselves, which I think is an important part of the conversation. Um, so any loss of life is tragic, and Israel does all that it can, but this is the unfortunate reality of war, and we need to continue to put pressure on and spend our time and resources holding the people accountable who are responsible for this mess in the first place. Um, you know, these people chanting and protesting, most of them, like you said, and we've talked about, can't find Israel on a map, don't know what they're talking about. If they went to Gaza themselves, they'd be killed and executed just like anyone else. Um, but Israel is going to do what it needs to do to protect itself. And, and I, I kind of spend less time worrying about and focusing on the people who, who are just going to believe their narratives. And there's nothing I'm going to say to them that's going to change their mind because they don't care. But I do hope that there are people who are kind of on the fence or, or have an open mind about what's going on and, and want to be educated about what's going on and just want to hear some facts on the ground. And I think it's important that people like you speak up because you, you've been to war, you know what this is like. And um, a, a civilian death on CNN doesn't mean genocide. It just doesn't. And there's no war in the history of, of humanity that's been fought without civilian casualties. And it's unfortunate. But again, who started it? Who, who, who did what they did on October 7th? There was a ceasefire on October 6th. Somebody broke the ceasefire on October 7th, and they're responsible for every single human life that's lost on both sides of the conflict. Yeah, I try to, like, like I, I have bias in the fact that I understand terrorism, and that's my bias because, you know, I've, I've been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Pakistan, all, all over the world, and all the populations that I've been in, 
I've seen amazing and beautiful people, human sure. beings that wanted freedom, their own personal liberties and freedoms and democracies, but they were embedded by terrorists, with terrorists, and some of them, in, in, including Afghans who were um, being basically held hostage in their own villages, had no choice, no say in the matter. So I get the innocent side, but I also understand the collaborative effort between the United States and Israel campaigning against terrorism is what this is. And certainly I understand that also the perspective of innocent people, specifically children being killed. You know, we had talked about uh, this attack on this really city center that took place. In a, in a tactical operations center, there are many levels of redundancy that take place to create what's called fidelity or correlation on a target. And, and that's just a fancy term to identify that if we drop a bomb, we're, we have a high level of confidence that the bomb that we're dropping is going to kill the terrorist and we weigh in risk mitigation what sacrifices we have to make, including collateral damage, which means civilian deaths. We were talking about it before about uh, Afghanistan and the coalition forces. The estimate, which is a very accurate depiction of my experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq, is 460,000 innocent civilians. I mean, civilians are always part of this thing called war. And a lot of the people, like you said, couldn't point to it on a map, just like the BLM movement where people were dragged into the streets to advocate for Marxist ideology in a crooked and corrupt campaign. Um, I have a feeling that a lot of people are being drugged into this the same way without understanding the complexity of the issue. Yeah, I mean, there, there's no question. And I think it's kind of multifaceted. Number one is uh, 200, just, just a one example, 200 Christians were murdered in Nigeria over Christmas. I saw that. No, no, no coverage. Nothing, not zero, zero. right? So it's, it, you're gonna have a hard time convincing me that you care about innocent people and there's not some other objective or narrative that you're trying to build or, or when, when you're just, you somehow it's it, the only time you speak up is when it has to do with Israel. I mean, you got how many hundreds of thousands of Muslims were murdered in, uh, in Syria. I mean, I can go on and on about times when the people who claim to be championing innocent human life don't give a damn about innocent human life. Um, number two, at all of these protests, there's, there's no calls for peace, right? It's not like we want peace in Israel. We want peace with the Palestinians and the Israelis. There's none of that. It's, we want more Israelis to die. We want more Jews to die. I mean, the, the protests started on October 7th. There were people rallying, chanting all these chants before even before even Israel responded, while, while there were still Israelis being murdered, the protests had already, and the rallies had already started. So again, it's hard for me to believe that the, that the true, honest motivation behind these are, we just want peace for innocent people. It's, it's not the case. What do, you, what do you think the motivation is where you have entities that are embedded in protests that activate chaos and and you see the same people chanting from the river to the sea chanting for a ceasefire even people in our own government congress representatives yeah um congressional representatives tearing down posters of kidnapped babies like yeah literally. and these representatives represent constituents who aren't hamas sympathizers but it seems like a lot of this is empathizing and siding with a terrorist organization. Yeah, I, I do think I do think it's organized. I, I do not believe for a second that these are grassroots movements of people who believe strongly in a cause and are coming together. I mean, you could see it, was it yesterday or two days ago where they had all these simultaneous protests at, at all these different airports and they're starting to identify some of these actors and they're the same people that have been involved in, in some of these chaotic protests here in America in the past. Um, so I think I think some of it, and and I I 
absolutely hate victimhood on, on so many levels, but I do think there's an element of just simple Jew hatred and anti-Semitism that whenever Jews and now Israel sh shows any sort of strength, it's, sorry, we can't have that because the only Jews we like are dead Jews, but I, but I do think there's an element of just creating chaos around the world, and this is, this is another way to, to do it. Again, there are, there are much larger conflicts with a lot more people dying all around the world that nobody, nobody speaks about. But all the coverage is on this little country in the Middle East. Um, that, that's, that's not by accident. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm fascinated by anti-Semitism overall from an outside perspective because I'm, I'm Asian American. You know, if, like if North Korea went to war with South Korea, I pick up a three three eight Lapool and I'd be going to war. Like a hundred percent would be invested, but I have no investment in sure in a an Arab or Muslim versus you know or Palestinian versus Israel side. And I think that's completely okay, by the way. Like yeah. I've I've seen a lot of like, well, America shouldn't be involved, or why do I care as an American? And I think that's a completely valid position to have. Like, I do think there's some nuance to the conversation as far as how America benefits from Israel being in that in that region of the world and being a beacon of Western morals and values in that region of the world. But put that aside, like, I think it's completely okay for an American to say, it's just not my, not my thing. Like, why, why do I need to care? Why do I need to be involved? I think that's completely okay. But the, the problem I start to have is, is when it reaches the other side of, I'm an American and I believe Israel doesn't have a right to exist or that Israel has no right to defend itself or, um, you know, women and children being deliberately targeted and murdered and raped and executed is somehow resistance to something. Um, Crazy. That's when it, that's when it crosses a line for me. Yeah, it's been redefined in, even in academia and in, in sure. Ivy League elite institutions that somehow that's just part of a collateral cause. It's it's part of the movement. Yeah, it's it's asinine. And and I think what I find fascinating about that is. You know, not, not to get into politics too much, but I'm starting to see on the right as well, we're, we're, again, not taking a position from somebody who's America first or something that we shouldn't be involved in foreign conflicts. Like, I, I, I can understand that position, but, but people trying to make Israel out to be the bad guy or the Nazis and aligning themselves with people who they oppose on every issue across the board, on everything, but... For some reason, the second it comes to Israel, you know, th those same people protesting two years ago that you called out as being the start of the destruction of our country and our civilization, now you're standing with them and saying, Israel has no right to defend itself and Israel is the occupiers and Israel are Nazis. And it's like, to, to me, that's, to me, that's, you're motivated by one thing is, is you cannot stand the image of a strong Jew protecting themselves, which is mind boggling to me. Now, I've, I've lost a few, I lost a lot of followers, but I lost a lot of friends as well. Some friends that I had to literally block and delete out of my life um, because they were, they're Muslim and their position in it, in it is Israel is oppressive to the Palestinian people and they're terrorizing them. And one of the conversations I had was, show me the evidence of this and in the same conversation why aren't you saying that hamas is terrorizing its own people because they have eight billion dollars of nonprofit funds they've been harvesting for terrorist operations and not to move their people into the future but you you seem to be okay with that and and like you said it once their uh, mind has been made up anything you say you're potentially on that side. And and I can't have, like you said, a nuanced p position where it's like, yeah, there's complexity to sure. my own position. I, I think the campaign against terrorism is the right campaign. I think fidelity and, and, and surgical strikes is the way forward. And then eventually we'll have to get to the next phase. And, you know, I, 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 I advocate, I would advocate for a two state solution because I think that's the only way to a, a, a democracy for the Palestinians to thrive, but that doesn't include Hamas. And a lot of people think it's one and the same, and it, it includes Hamas. And Hamas, there needs to be a ceasefire so they can re, 
collect themselves, police themselves, make up for, for all the things they've done, give back the hostages, and everything's going to be okay. Right. So, so that's not what they're advocating for, right? They're not advocating for two-state solution, which, again, I think is a valid conversation that, that should be had. They're advocating for genocide and intifada, which, again, is, is mind-blowing to me. Um, and what also people don't know is, is that in 2005, Israel removed every Jew from the Gaza Strip and handed control 100% over to the Palestinian people. There was no, no blockade, no, no anything. And basically said, you say you want a future for your people, go do it. Here, here it is, go do it. It took about 12 months before Hamas was elected. Um, not only that, when the Jews left, they, they gave them, they gave the Palestinians infrastructure to start building their society, greenhouses and, and all these types of things. Day one, they were destroyed. We don't want anything from the Jews. Elected Hamas and turned the Gaza Strip into a base for terror. That, that to me doesn't scream, we want a state. Yeah. That screams to me, we just don't want you to have a state. The, the leader of Hamas just literally said from this pretty cush hotel situation, we won't discuss recognizing Israel, only wiping it off the face of the planet. So what are we talking about? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation if you're not reading the cues from terrorists, right? Um, you spend six weeks, about six weeks post October 10th, uh, t uh, 10th in service to get involved. You never actually went into Gaza, but you're pre-staging and getting prepared for the campaign. What is What was that circumstance like? And then what happened to where you, you pulled back and obviously to the US? Yeah, so when I first got there, um immediately went south with our first kind of objective just to protect the Jewish communities in the south who were left particularly vulnerable in the face of October 7th attacks. Um, at that point, there was there were still Hamas terrorists inside Israel. Um, so the first objective was just to keep the people safe. Uh, that once there was a confidence that anyone who had breached into Israel was either killed or had returned back into Gaza, we were then redeployed to uh, the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, just south of Hebron, um, with kind of a similar objective. Is there was a lot of thought that the events of October October seventh would um, inspire additional attacks all throughout the country, um, especially with Hamas in the West Bank, Judea, and Samaria, which which does exist, uh, contrary to popular opinion. Um, so really, just protecting communities there, trying to put a dent in Hamas infrastructure in the West Bank, um, and then ultimately there was a little bit of a pause in the action. Um, and my wife is due with our our first child here in a couple of weeks. So just speaking to her and speaking to command, I felt it was best to kind of check out at that point. And things had been more organized and under control. And I didn't feel like if I leave, there's no one else who can stand in my place. Um, and felt it was important to, to be back here in the States with my wife. I mean, also to, to start organizing Jewish communities here in the States. You know, something that you're big on is preparedness. And I think that's um, paramount not only for individuals, but as well as communities. Um, and the, the security organization that you mentioned out in LA is called Magen Am, which means our nation's shield. Um, kind of in that same same mentality is something that we've learned firsthand, unfortunately, from the events in Israel is we cannot rely on government and law enforcement to protect us when that moment actually comes. And we need to take that responsibility on ourselves, whether it's organizing as individuals and being prepared for situations that might arise, whether it's physically or medically or even mentally and, and spiritually, um, but as well as organizing communities to get together as, as one community and, and realize what needs to be done together to protect the community on a, on a, on a more organized level. Um, so that's part of what I'm trying to do now is just trying to, trying to get the word out and, and try and help other Jews specifically in, in my community and Jewish communities around the country realize that we can't we can't bury our head in the sand anymore like it it's only a matter of time and that day is going to come and and are we going to be prepared and if we're not the only people that we have to blame is is ourself um whether it's you know learning how to use a firearm or or just some 
basic situational awareness stuff or, you know, combatives, just, just start to build that mentality of, of we're all our own protectors and our own first responders and our own defenders. And um, that doesn't happen overnight. It's, it's the mentality that you got to build over time. And um, I think people are starting to wake up in our communities and realize that. And um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at now. How do you think this, um, how do you think this entire thing unfolds? How do you, how do you think with your military experience, your perspective on the ground, you have a broader overall experience than even an Israeli who's living it on the ground. How do you think it ends? Where does it ever end? I mean, my sincere hope is that, that some way, somehow, peace is achieved. I think, I think again, for some reason, people have this idea of Israelis that we're, we're looking for, like we're looking for war. I, I kind of mentioned at the beginning of the of our conversation of like every Israeli, every single one has lost somebody in war, in conflict, in terrorism. To me, what I found most fascinating, and this was true in in my initial active service, but now as well, is in between all the action guys would just sit around and, and sing songs about peace and talk about peace and like when can we have a time where we don't need to do this anymore um you know right now there are there are people with 35 40 year olds with with four kids at home who hadn't picked up a rifle in, in a year two years 10 years who who are falling in battle who are who want nothing more than just to, to never have to be in this situation again and want to to live in peace and, and there are Palestinians living there, and that includes Palestinians as well. The loss of life is awful for everybody. War, as you know, is awful for everybody involved, and we all yearn for a day where this is not our reality anymore. Obviously, it's, it's much more complex than that, and I think the first step is to Hamas needs to be eradicated, needs to be destroyed, and the Palestinian people for themselves need to make the choice we want a different future than the last 70 years. The resistance, the, the targeting of innocent people has gotten us nothing, nowhere. And as a society, you know, amplify the voices of the people that believe in living side by side, the people that, leave in, that believe in living in peace, teaching the children the value of life, not the value of blowing yourself up for the cause. There is no value in that. Even Jews as, as soldiers, like I've seen people online mocking soldiers who are, you know, crying at funerals and things like that. Like, oh, these guys think they're tough. And it's like, no, I take no value in being tough, but I take tremendous loss in the fact that my buddy who has three kids at home, those three kids are growing up without a father. That's, that's sad to me. And I think Palestinian leadership and these organizations that claim to represent Palestinians need to make that shift because they continue to lead their people astray. And, and if it continues with that same mindset, we'll be back here in five years and 10 years talking about the same things. Last question. Do you, do you have any Palestinian friends? Um, that's a good question. No, I wouldn't say I have any close friends who are Palestinians. I have friends who, who are Arabs. Um, Again, I served alongside Arabs. They wouldn't necessarily uh, call themselves Palestinians. They would call themselves Israeli Arabs. Um, What's but, their perspective on it? What's their position and perspective on, on this conflict and the Palestinians' position? So I can only go by based on people I've interacted with as well as some polls that I've seen and, and some research that was done. Um, Post-October 7th, the overwhelming majority of Palestinian Arabs are against Hamas and are understand exactly what Israel is doing and believe that that Israel needs to be uh, that Israel needs to wipe out Hamas. Um, Israeli Arabs have freedoms in Israel that their Palestinian or Arab brothers in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip don't have. I mean, they understand that. Some of the polls that I've seen, as far as the the thought process of Palestinians in the West Bank or the Gaza Strip, is unfortunately it seems like too many of them support. The Hamas cause and and support the killing of of children and and women and innocent people, um, but there are there are definitely 
lots of them who just want to live in peace. And something that I did, interestingly enough, after my service is I went back to some of these Palestinian areas just as a civilian, not in uniform, not, not, not introducing myself as a soldier or anything. I'm just, um, just interested in talking to people of kind of what's your perspective. And there were definitely people who had issues with the IDF and, and the Israeli government and things like that. But more than I heard that, overwhelmingly what I heard is that the Palestinian Authority, their own leadership, does not give a damn about us, uh, is using us as pawns, um, and they're more corrupt and evil than, than anyone else, any other leadership in the region. So these are the voices that need to be amplified, but of course nobody does that because it doesn't benefit the larger players. Yeah, it doesn't um, benefit their narrative. So, so that's the way forward to me. It's like society decisions, like we're going to do this differently, but also as individuals or these organizations, speaking to the people on the ground who are impacted most by all this stuff and amplifying those voices and trying to get them in positions of, of influence and leadership. Because again, if, if the status quo stays what it is and the leadership stays what it is, I don't know if it'll be me and you, but someone somewhere will be having the same conversation in 10 years from now, which is, which would be sad and unfortunate. Oh, heavy stuff, man. Label, I appreciate you coming out, man. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the conversation. Yeah, guys, uh, all label stuff will be down below. Links, contact. If he gives you contact, um, you guys can reach out, especially if this, uh, the idea of uh, preparing Jewish communities. Um, that's really cool. I mean, yeah. it, being self-reliant from institutions and focusing on community, families, and individual preparedness is awesome. And you were a big influence on that. Like when I came back from the military, I was not really exposed to the culture here in America too much before that as far as preparedness and the military culture. Um, but there were a few guys, including yourself, who I started to pay attention to when a lot of things started to click. And, and um, I think it's important work that you're doing as well because Jewish community, not Jewish community, we're seeing it more and more often when individuals need to be able to stand up and protect themselves and we can't rely on outside sources. So I appreciate you, appreciate the influence. And, um, you know, to me, it's, it's one person at a time. And that's, that's what I'm trying to do. I know that's what you're doing. And, and I appreciate this opportunity. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming in here telling the story. Appreciate you guys. Um, subscribe, hit the notification tab, leave your comments and questions down below. We'll make sure we get to them. Appreciate you guys.